0: Again, I want to invite you to to open your Bibles uh, to Genesis chapter one as we we look at that. There are questions that are often uh, raised. Maybe we will raise them, but we particularly when we went to college and all, we'll hear these questions raised. Where where did we come from? Do our lives matter? Is this all that there is? What's the purpose of life? These, these deep, heavy questions and, you know, you hear comedians or some folks just kind of, you know, just say it and what's the meaning of life and as though there is no answer? Well, our text this morning answers these questions. It tells us that these are not difficult questions to have to find the answers to. So with that in mind, let's uh, begin looking at our text. And by the way, if you notice sometimes uh, the words might be a little bit different or not. um, I tend to preach from the English Standard Version, and what you'll have out there is the the NIV, the New International Version. Both are fine. They're they're good versions. Ministers just happen to have their particular taste. So we're going to look at here what we can learn about God man, and nature. We actually have too large of a text to take in everything that could be learned in here. We're going to pick up just some, a few things here and there that, that are the primary lessons, really, that I think that our texts are presenting in each case. And first of all, what do we learn about God as our creator? Well, we begin it right there at the beginning, in the beginning. The beginning of Scripture takes us to the beginning of everything. Where did we come from? Where did everything come from? And the answer is, quite clear, is from God. God alone is in the beginning. What do we ascertain? What do we learn from that fact, if God is from the beginning? Well, we understand one thing, is that God is eternal. Unlike us, Unlike everything else, God has no beginning. There wasn't this time in which there was no God and he came into being or he was a little spark of something and then he kind of grew into his own understanding and knowledge. God has always been the same from before the beginning. God is also, if he's from the beginning, that means that God is self-sufficient. Everything else, we everything that has life, that takes breath, anything that's a living thing, owes his existence to something, to someone else. God owes his existence to no one. And furthermore, he needs nothing, he needs no one to maintain his existence. He doesn't need anything outside of himself to sustain him, to make his life meaningful, to be more complete, to to be happier. We often like to say to ourselves, and we like to think that God created the world, He, he created us so that he could have fellowship. God has had fellowship from the beginning. There is God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We were not needed. This creation is not needed. And Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah 40, 28. He says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Now, you and I... Particularly those of you my age and that generation, we grow weary a lot, don't we? Too much activity. We have limits with our bodies, limits with our minds. But God has had no beginnings, and therefore, he never becomes weak. He never tires. He is never without complete knowledge. He's not absent-minded. didn't forget anything this morning, watching us as we came to church. There is no beginning for God, but God has begun. He begins everything. God is the creator. And the second thing that we're told here, we go on in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Where did everything come from? From the one God. There is no other creator. There is no other God. Now, again, listen to God speaking through Isaiah about this. This is in Isaiah 44. I'm going to begin with verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And if God doesn't know of any other God, there is no other God. He goes on in verse 24. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things. Who alone stretched out the heavens. Who spread out the earth myself, I didn't ask anybody else how to do this. I didn't look to anyone else. I did it alone. So, God is our creator. He is the only creator. Now, we're going to consider a phrase that occurs throughout the text. You'll see it a number of times. It's this phrase, and God said, let. So, in verse 3, God said, let there be Light, and there's light. Uh, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Verse 9, God said, let the waters and the heavens be gathered together into to one place. God said, let the vegetation sprout. Let there be lights in the expanse. Let there be the, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And, and let the waters form with, with all kinds of creatures in, in the, the sky with birds. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Now, Moses is highlighting what he's doing here. Moses, who wrote this here in Genesis, wants to highlight this activity of God speaking. Specifically, God speaking forth creation. Now, he could have written it this way. He could have just said, and God determined that there would be light and darkness, and God determined that there would be the seas, and God determined, and and then God made these things, and God created these things. Instead, he's very consciously introducing each activity of creation with the spoken word of God. That's how God created. This idea of the word of God spoken as power in itself It's replayed in Scripture. So, for example, the psalmist in Psalm 33, verses 6 to 9, he says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Or in Isaiah 55, verses 10 to 11 For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and, and sprout, giving seed to the sower, and the bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I speak, the words go forth, and it accomplishes whatever my will is. God the Creator speaks. Creation comes into being. God the Ruler speaks. His will is carried out. Such is the almighty power of God. Now, one other thing that we see in this presentation of the, of the creator God is that he is outside of his creation. Creation is not an extension of God. That's how some folks look at this. That's how some philosophies are. You know, the God, we're kind of pantheists. Uh, the world and nature is just an extension of God. Furthermore, God is, he's above creation. And to put it in another way, it's just a way of saying that God remains in control of his creation. He is not Frankenstein. Frankenstein is the creator, by the way, of the monster. He's not the monster itself, if you read the, the book. And in the book, Dr. Frankenstein creates his creature, and loses control. God the Father, the Creator, does not lose control. Again, Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah 40, verse 25. Lift up your eyes on high and see who, who created these. It's, it's at night, looking up the starry beings. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Nothing is out of place. Nothing is missing. God at never time is going to be saying, wait a minute, Where, where did that go? He's in control of all things. So, what have we learned so far? There is but one God. There is one God who is the one creator. He is the creator of all that exists on earth throughout the heavens. He is outside of. He's above his creation, which he alone brought into being. How? By the power of his spoken word. So that's what we learn of God. What now does our text teach us about man? Well, there, there are two dominant concepts here in this text. That is focused on man, which sets him apart from the rest of creation. And we're going to see the first one in this first sentence in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And then further on in verse 27. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. Look at that three times there. Man is made. Now I want you to note who all comes under that term man. Male and female. Okay. Now, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, that is the question. Now, I'm not going to jump into the debates and discussions of centuries, of theologians trying to understand what is it that makes clearly man the image of God. But we can note a few things that everyone would agree upon. First of all, man, male and female, has a unique relationship with God by virtue of this image. Whatever may be scientifically true about the common makeup between man and, and all other animals, there is nevertheless something in man that sets him apart. Something that makes him like God in some way is in the image of God. Now, is it reason? Some people think that's what it is. Is it is it morality? Does it involve some other character traits that we share with God? It's, it's an interesting thing to explore, but it's a tricky thing to explore. But whatever it is, it links us to our creator in a way that no other creature is linked to God, at least in the physical world. Now, the next point enforces this understanding. Man, or if you're looking in the NIV, when I've said man, you've saw mankind, okay? The term is man. It's, it's actually, it is the Hebrew word Adam. That's where we get the name Adam, okay? So man, as the image of God, is given dominion. If you're looking at the NIV, it just says man gives man the power to rule, okay? he has the right, the responsibility to rule over the remainder of creation. So in verse 26, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree would feed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And King David reflected on the status of man in Psalm 8. you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So David is looking here and he's he's thinking, "Like I'm so small, I, I see this amazing creation. And yet you have made me, you have made my fellow. Uh, man of uh, mankind, men and women, to have dominion over these things. Now, this position of authority it reflects the dominion of God. It's another way of saying that man is unique, uniquely connected to God, the Creator. All right, let's recap what we have learned so far. Okay, first of all, about God, there is but one God, one God who is the one Creator of all that exists on earth and throughout the heavens. He's he's outside of, he's above his creation, which he alone brought into being by the power of his spoken word. And the capstone of his creation, so to speak, is man, male and female, whom he brought into being again by the power of his spoken word. And he has given them dominion over the rest of created nature. Well, that leads us to the third thing. What do we learn about nature? Well, the primary thing that we learn about nature in this text, what we learn about the physical world, is that it was made good. Indeed, seven times this is said. God saw that the light was good. He called the dry land earth, and the waters he called cheese, and God saw that it was good the earth brought forth vegetation. God saw that it was good. God sets up the sun and the moon and then the stars. He saw that it was good. Everything he saw that it was good until we come to verse 31. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So Certainly, we can conclude one thing about creation, about the physical world, it's good. And this is in distinct contrast to Greek philosophy, for example, of of the ancient days or of, of Eastern religions of today, which looks upon, which teaches that the physical world and the physical body is either just outright evil, it's not good, or it's just something that, it's like baggage that we, when we finally enter into the spirit world, we can get rid of it. And there are even those in the, in the Christian church who have allowed that kind of teaching get into our minds. We, we kind of have this idea that our final destination is that of heaven and we will have no bodies. We're just being spirits. But that's not the teaching of Scripture. And creation, a physical life, is clearly presented as something that is, is good. Now, we don't look forward to getting rid of it. We look forward to its resurrection. And so, when we understand it properly, it gives us a greater understanding and appreciation of God as our Creator. He didn't make all this stuff, it's just something temporary, and now He can get rid of it. He is a God of beauty, God of great glory and majesty. And so, we're told look up through the physical sky. In Psalm 19.1, it says, The heavens, look up to the heavens, they declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. You want to see how glorious God is? Look up there. Or in Psalm 36, which shows us how the physical world helps us to grasp the marvelous traits of God. Your steadfast love, O Lord, it extends to the heavens your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like, like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep of the oceans. It's that creation that helps us understand the God whom we cannot see. And Romans 1.20 states this very clearly. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived how? Well, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So, nature, far from turning us away from the, the truths and, and the beauty of, of God as spirit and the spiritual world, it was originally intended to draw us all the more closer to God. It's also intended for our pleasure and for our nurture of man. Man was to take pleasure in its beauty. Man was to be fed by the food produced and and no doubt to, to reap many benefits from his dominion over nature. So again, let's think what we have learned. We have got our Creator. He alone is God. He alone is self-sufficient. He alone is the ruler over his creation. As the choir saying, you are sovereign over God, over all that you have made. We have man who's created in God's image, who as a result we hold a special relationship with God, a special status in creation, who serves as a steward, ruler for God's creation. And there's nature. Created as something that is good. Created as something to display the glory of God and to serve the needs of man. Now, we've touched on much, on a great deal and on very little. There's much to learn and there's so much to apply that we can in our lives and issues today. But here are just a few lessons that we can gain. First of all, one thing that we can learn is that we have responsibility. God has given man the dignity of dominion ruling the earth and its creatures. But that dominion carries with it responsibility. God is the creator of our domain. So all the more, we must take good care of what he created to be good. We do not take care of animals because they and we are the, the same product on an evolutionary scale. We do not protect the environment Merely for the reason, well, we we need the world to you know, for our health, for our survival. We care for creation because it is our creator's creation. We are the rulers who are stewards for the great ruler. Now another thing that I want us to understand is that because we have a creator, we have a creator to whom we matter. I can't remember what sermon it was, but a few months ago I made reference to the Desert errata, and those of you of my age you remember that back in the '70s and made the top 10, and it's, it's a kind of poem in which it assures us that we're OK. You are a child of the universe, no less than the trees and the stars. you have a right to be here, and whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. It's a great sentiment with no assurance. It's the nice feelings of some man who earlier in that century had had written it. Genesis 1 introduces us to the one true God who is our creator. It states clearly then for us we are not an accident, neither as, as mankind in general, even as each individual that's here right now. We matter because we have an eternal God to whom we matter. And for those who think that they would rather do without a creator, think of what that means. Well, if you were in college, you had to read Thomas Hardy. He wrote Tess of the Turbyvilles and far from the maddening crowd, he also wrote poetry. And Thomas Hardy was a self-professed atheist, and he did think about what that meant. And he wrote a poem about it called Hap. And in that poem, he he begins, he says, look, if if there was some vengeful God who just called to me from up at the sky, and he would laugh at me. You suffering thing. You know that, I want you to know that your sorrows is my ecstasy. I love this. He says, I could bear that. Because I, you know, I could clench myself and, and I could die and and one thing that I would know is that what happened to me, I didn't deserve it. I'd have at least the comfort of knowing that there was somebody thinking about me, more powerful than I was, and he was making me suffer. But that's not the truth. Why is it that I have sorrow instead of joy? Why, why are all the hopes that I've had have been dashed away, they've been slain? Chance. That's it. That's all that happened. It's what obstructs the sun and the rain. I could just have easily have had all these good things to happen. There was nothing. There was no one out there. There is nothing out there that takes any notice of me. All that happens to me is meaningless. That's what you have when you have no God. It means that there's nothing in the universe that pays us any notice. That's the reality if atheism is right. But Hardy is not right. There is a God who is our creator. And though there's much, I mean, we don't understand. Yeah, the universe is unfolding in a very purposeful way. And we as mankind, as each male and female, have a purpose. And it will never be forgotten. We matter because we matter to our creator. Indeed, we not only matter, but we matter more than anything else in creation, because we are made in the image of God. And we've marred that image, so much so we brought shame to that image. Nevertheless, the image remains in us. And it's for the very purpose of redeeming and purifying that image that the greatest the most wondrous, the most glorious act has incurred since the beginning. The Son of God took on man's flesh and redeemed these images of God. It was not for any other creature that Christ died. It was not for any other animals. It was not even for angels. It was for us. And, and however brilliant might be the stars, however grand may be this universe and and all the galaxies. It is we who were made in the image of God who shall someday reign in glory. It is for us that praise and glory and honor will come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.7. And Colossians 3:4 teaches us when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Glory. It is glory that awaits us. And and why glory? Because we're not merely being saved, but in our union with Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, our images are being conformed to Him. He who is the eternal image of God. Because he is the true substance of God. All of us know, one of our favorite verses, everyone here will say this, is Romans 8, 28. For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, and we'll quote it to ourselves, and when unpleasant things happen, because we don't really understand why is this happening, it's not very pleasant, and I can't really say it, and we kind of say it with a sigh. Well, it's working for my good. our problem is that we're short-sighted. We're looking for the good purpose to be something immediate, something that's going to make us happy now. Well, we will indeed someday be happy more than we understand. For the purpose that is for us is expressed in the following verses that goes on after 28. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We will be glorified. And we will be glorified because God is causing all things, everything that is happening to us, to conform us to the image of his Son. We were created in the image of God so that all along we might conform fully to the image of God the Son. The fall happened. It marred the image, but it did not destroy it. God the Son came to redeem that image and he, through the Holy Spirit, he's doing it. He is restoring that image in us and he will not fail. God is predestined it to happen in us and indeed we can consider it done. We're not children of the universe. We're the children of God, the creator. And he has not created us to live a few years and then we decay in the dust he has created us to live forever and the day will come when when he will raise us up from the dust from which we were originally formed as we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 just as we have borne the image of the man of dust adam we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven jesus christ brothers and sisters This is the destiny for all who look to Jesus Christ for salvation. This is the promise that he will keep to all who come to him. Let us pray. We do give you praise our God that you have created us. You have created all things, but you have created us in your image. We are not a chance. We are not a chance happening. We will never be forgotten. We not merely will not be forgotten. We shall be raised in glory to dwell with you forever. That is our hope that is in Jesus Christ. That is our hope in the work of the Holy Spirit. Keep our eyes ever looking to our Lord Jesus, to you as our great creator and redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.